My grandfather used to say, we're always thankful for one thing in spite of another. And it's striking to me singing that song and sitting here today in the wake of last night, uh, the shooting in Orlando, and just standing back there, I was trying to frame in my mind how those that are involved are grateful this morning. We were singing about a great God a while ago, and I was wondering, how do those, how does Christina Grimmy, her family, the young boy singer, how do they frame the greatness of God today? And it just brings me back to the reality, and this is one of the reasons that I appreciate the Christian faith so much, is we have an incarnational faith. And by incarnational, that's a fancy theological term that simply means in flesh. We have a fleshed out faith. A God, so goes our story, who created the world, stepped back and said that's good. Um, God was not a platonic dualist who thought the ethereal and the spiritual was good and the material or the corporeal was bad. That's not our story. God created a physical world and said that's good. And then the coup de grace of our story uh, was that God came to earth in flesh, incarnation, uh, in material, not immaterial, as Plato would have surmised, but in material. And it was the ultimate attestation that this is good, all of this is good. So out of incarnational theology, we've never tried to flee the material to find the good in the ethereal. As I often quote C.S. Lewis, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. It was a terrible, terrible uh, thing that happened to us in the King James translation when the Greek word sarx, which meant sin nature to Paul, sarx was translated flesh. You see what happened? We took sin nature and translated it flesh. So all of a sudden, those puritanical... Uh, by Puritanism, H.L. Mencken said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that somebody somewhere is having a good time. <laughs> and some of us grew up in that kind of a spirituality where all this was bad, you know, the flesh. We were always trying to escape the flesh. What a, what a terrible philosophical mistake we made. So we are incarnational we don't try to escape the material to find the good and yet in the midst of a world and, and you know we're just dealing this morning this week with Western news and, and yet it, it's amazing watching us the shock in our hearts and on our face when things like Orlando happen and the reality is it, it shows us how geocentric we, we really are because those things are happening every now and then we get reports of a young girl who's set on fire by her mother and brother for eloping with the love of her life. Those things slip through, but then we find out in that country over a thousand of those killings have happened in the last 12 months. Religion can go so foul, culture can go so foul that people can set their own family on fire because the family brought shame to them by marrying somebody they loved. And yet, we do not try to escape all of this to find the good. 
And those of us who are theists and believers, we not only try to affirm the goodness of this world, we try to affirm in the midst of that the greatness of God. And I suppose in my heart I intuit the greatness of God, but as I was sitting with my fifth grade, soon to be fifth grade daughter a moment ago, I thought now, how in the wake of Orlando do I explain gratitude and the greatness of God? Does the greatness of God mean to me what it used to mean, and that is that God's in control of everything? God is so great, God will do what I ask God to do. If I pray hard enough, you know, things will turn out for me the way that I, I suppose they should. I don't know. I, I thought I would be very disingenuous this morning. I certainly don't want to turn this macabre because we do have a lot of things to be grateful for. But um, Paul also said, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And you finally realize that that admixture has to happen simultaneously. It's not calling for spiritual schizophrenia. He's calling for this recognition. As my grandfather used to say, we're always thankful for one thing in spite of another. Right? We're always thankful for one thing in spite of another. But as we're considering this subject, we, we, we broached last week the subject of prayer. I always supposed that prayer was just talking to God, communicating with God. So if, I think in part that's exactly what it is, it is talking to God, but I think it's more than that. What are we saying to God today? What are we saying to God today? What are we saying meaningfully to God today? I think the big question is, what are we saying that actually makes a difference? And I know we, we went through that phase of prayer changes God, and then we, after so many centuries of not seeing God changed as much as we wanted God changed, then we finally realized prayer changes us, right? We went through that, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes us. What are we saying to God today that perhaps would impact God? What are we saying to ourselves today? And all things give thanks. What's that mean? First Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop praying. I was I'm just musing for a moment here just to try not to get lost in a sermon and actually live in reality with the rest of the world. But I, this morning I just picked up the Bible and I thought, you know, what did Jesus say about these kinds of things? And I went to the text where he talked about prayer more than, more than he ever talked about it in any other place. And I thought, well, maybe this will speak to me. And I just started reading. And when you pray, don't be like hypocrites, hypocrites, people who wear two faces. It was an acting term. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues. That's interesting. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. They pray that they might be seen by other people. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. 
It's interesting. They are rewarded. They're rewarded by the gratification they get from people thinking they're spiritual. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Interesting. You pray publicly and people give you a claim, you have your reward. But when you pray, do it privately and your Father will reward you openly. What's that look like? Anybody ever felt rewarded for praying secretly? When you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. That's interesting. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Anybody ever wondered, well, why are we praying then if you already, right? Therefore, don't be like them. Your Father knows what you have need of even before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray. It's interesting. Jesus just said, don't use vain repetitions. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer that we've been praying for 2,000 years repetitively. I wonder if that's really what he meant for us to do. Don't pray in vain repetition. But in this manner. That's interesting. He didn't say, pray this prayer. He said, in this way, pray. Well, what was the way he prayed? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Automatically, Jesus is in a first century context and he's speaking a first century language and there's parts of that that just... Our Father in heaven. I mean, it's been a very important part of my life to not turn God into a woman, but to simply say God's not a male either. The divine feminine and the divine masculine are both in God. And I think using masculine pronouns all the time says more about ourselves than it says about God. I don't mind calling God mother any more than I mind calling God father. That's me. You take your journey with that. But I think there's severe implications for the way we think about ourselves and the way we talk about God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Kingdom? You know, on this side of nation states, kingdoms really aren't the best way of organizing people and doing life together. Proletariats and serfs and slaves and all of that. Your kingdom come. That's why a few years ago, some of the real mystics among us, like Henry Nouwen, began to say kingdom is really not the best verbiage. Kings really aren't the best leaders. And they begin to transition to things like the beloved community. I like that better, actually, than a kingdom. Beloved community. Pray in this manner. You see, what I just did was when you don't have to pray this repetitively, but Jesus says, capture this spirit and pray this way. And to do that in the 21st century, 
I think we can still capture the spirit and use 21st century language. Paul spoke of his relationship with God as a relationship of slave and slave owner. Reprehensible. Not in the first century. In the 21st century, reprehensible. I can take the spirit of what Paul was saying and I really don't want to describe God and me as slave and slave owner anymore. But extrapolating backwards, grading on the curve of time, I get Paul's sentiment. I get what he was trying to say. I'm thankful that the scripture doesn't say, repeat this vainly. As a matter of fact, scripture is wise enough to almost see where we would possibly do that. And so right up front before Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, he says, now listen, don't use this repetitiously. How did we not hear that? Right out of the chute, he said, I know you're going to do this legalistically. In every church and 12-step group, you're going to be using this prayer. Don't do it. Here's what I want you to do. Capture my spirit, capture the heart, and in this manner, pray. Religion vainly repeats. Spirituality finds manner. Way. The spirit of the text. Give us this day our daily bread. I remember the last time I was in Wanamint, Haiti. I stood around with a group of children outside the gate of the school. 520 kids come to the school. 130 kids are in the orphanage called Anita's Children. And hundreds stand at the gates of the school looking through because the only gratification they get is to watch other children eat. And in Wanamint, in 2005, I know 51% of the children under 12 were HIV positive, And the average child in Wanamint ate once every three days. If you can't make this prayer make sense for those children, this prayer doesn't make sense. Give us this day I stood with a group of children outside the gate it was a particular little ceremony that I had been asked to go to um, long story but I held a group of dirty hands of starving children and I heard them in their creole pray give us this day our daily bread and I thought Neil what's that mean to them they eat every third day Give us every third day our daily bread. See, you got to make this stuff make sense in flesh, incarnation. If it's just abstracting and hypothesizing, it's irrelevant. No wonder the church is getting smaller in the West. It's not the great falling away, it's the great irrelevance. Give us this day our daily bread. That was a good line. It's not the great falling away. It's the great irrelevance. It's a sad line, but it's true. But I think this stuff, if we find the manner of it, is incredibly relevant and has the potential to change our lives. But I was thinking about Christina Grimmie and her brother diving on the shooter and that horrible event, and I was thinking, I grew up in a family that truly believed if we pray and dispatch angels, we have guardian angels that are around us and these things don't happen right what happens to guardian angels do they go to sleep do they let down do they let shooters in
Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Let me just read a little bit. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces. They appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. Don't appear to be fasting. Your Father sees in secret. He will reward you openly. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore I say to you, And, and every person who went to the nightclub last night, many of them Christians from Christian backgrounds. I didn't used to think Christians go to nightclubs, but we have karaoke tonight, so I've changed my mind about all of that. <laughs> so I think a lot of people were Christians last night, believers, theists. Christina Grimmie's family was too. This has to make sense today, or at least maybe it doesn't have to make sense but we at least have to wrestle with it. Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, don't worry about your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Okay. Brian, Moldova. That place that's been on your heart. Starving kids. You gotta read this text to them. You gotta look through the gate and want a mint to the children that don't get in to eat. And you've gotta say, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap. Turn your starving face toward the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And they read that and they hear that how? Which of you, by worrying, can one add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the flowers. Well, you can't because Hades deforested. It doesn't have flowers. Because they don't have infrastructure and every tree has been cut down to make charcoal to eat. What do you do when there's no flowers to look at? You appropriate this how? You say, what are you doing, Stan? You're trying to depress us? No, I'm trying to say if we can't make sense of this, then we are doing exactly what Jesus said and just gathering together in a religious setting and vainly praying repetitious things that are so irrelevant. 
The world has given up a long time ago on any hope to be found in that irrelevance. Look at the flowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Don't worry about these things, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, so if you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what did Jesus just say about prayer? What did Jesus just say about prayer? Who are we talking to? What are we saying? What is the response? What is prayer? Jesus ended by admitting the day is full of trouble. Jesus ended by admitting this is no Pollyannic world. Things like nightclub shootings do happen. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Come into the present and seek things. Set your heart on things that are bigger than food and clothing and even shelter. What, what are those things? These are the questions we have to ask. What are those things that are bigger than food and clothing and shelter? Jesus said that's the kingdom of God and righteousness. Okay, the righteousness part I can begin to understand. There's something bigger than tomorrow's clothes and tomorrow's food. There's something bigger than even today's food and today's clothing. It's this thing, he said, it's the kingdom and righteousness. Righteousness could have been translated justice. Set your heart on justice. Consider today's trouble and set your heart toward justice. And then maybe he said these things will be added because these things come when hearts are prayerfully set on the kingdom of God, which the kingdom of God simply in its best explanation is the world operating the way God would want it to operate. And when the world operates the way that God wants it to operate, that world is a just world. It's a righteous world. Until that righteousness and until that justice happens, until there's equity, until there's food for all, until no more children are starving, no more people are being killed by weapons that shouldn't be on the street, by fools who shouldn't be wielding them. Seek 
those things that are above, he said. Set your heart on those things that are above. Walk humbly. Love mercy. Do justice. For me, prayer is no longer a magic wand, a genie in a bottle, an abracadabra. Prayer is this thing, this disposition of mind, this, this thing that I can actually fulfill, First Thessalonians 5.17, that tells me to pray always. It is this inner longing. It is this inner disgust. It is this inner pain. It's waking up to nightclub shootings. It's reconciling deprivation and not being able to reconcile it and being left with an angst. And yet the flip side of that angst and that longing is a love and a craving and an appreciation for beauty and art, for stomachs that are full and for people who love. Prayer is a longing for the world made right. Prayer is a longing for my heart made right. Prayer is a longing for justice. And Jesus said if all of us, instead of going to religious places and offering repetitious prayers, if all of us would just set our heart on those things that are above, come into that place of ultimate longing. Jesus said then all of these other things that we're seeking... Oh, we're seeking them vociferously. We're seeking them voraciously. We're seeking them at one another's expense. We're seeking them like survival of the fittest. We're seeking them with a scarcity mentality. We're trying to climb over one another to these successes, these acquisitions. And Jesus said, if the world would quit seeking these things at the expense of the other, then they would quit expensing their own soul. And if we would simply long for those things together, long for those things, loving our neighbor as ourselves, this is prayer. This is prayer. Yesterday, 42 of our children came over here and prayed. They sure did. 42 children stood over here and packed lunches for people who are suffering from homelessness. 42 of our children gathered and stuffed bags full of toothpaste and toothbrushes and deodorant and soap. You know what our children were doing? Our children were here praying the Our Father. They weren't doing it with vain repetitions saying, Our Father who art in heaven, do something for these people. Our children stood in line yesterday and prayed in the manner of Jesus. That's what they did. That was the manner of Jesus. That was the Lord's prayer. That was the Lord's prayer. Wherever you find to make peace with yourself and others, this is the Lord's Prayer. Wherever you find to resolve hunger in the belly of a child, to visit an old person who's lonely at a nursing home, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is seeking first justice. Wherever you see injustice and seek to undo that, and resolve that with justice. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is praying the Our Father.
My grandfather told me years ago, he said, Stan, you never deserve to be in a pulpit unless you've been on your hours at least, or on your knees at least three hours that day. Wow. I'm going to tell you what I learned to do. I learned to sleep on my knees. Because I sure could talk to an invisible God for three hours on my knees. But the legalism followed me for years. And I used to, and when I finally couldn't do it anymore, I felt so bad when I would get up in the pulpit. And I knew I had not prayed that day. At least three hours. I remember those days of getting down on my knees and I would say, Oh, Lord... And I would go through the Lord's Prayer three or four times and I would go through all my needs and I'd think of all my cousins. That was always good. That would always take up like 20 minutes just talking about all my cousins and 42 first cousins and 107 second cousins. Just long lists. Jesus said, I don't need long lists. I know who they are. You don't have to remind me that Aunt Myrtle's in room 303 at Baptist Hospital. I was there before you got there. I know. Don't say these things. Live this manner. In this manner, don't go to synagogues. Don't go to synagogues and quote old, ancient rhymes. Bring your kids to church on a Saturday afternoon and teach them how to say the Our Father. Teach them how to put peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in plastic bags. I heard one of our children yesterday think, as I was putting each sandwich in the bag, Leanne, she said, as I was putting each sandwich in the bag, I was thinking about what the person would look like and how much they would love it when they were eating it. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day. That's the prayer Give us this day our daily bread. Roy, an eight-year-old child, visualizing what somebody under a bridge looked like eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that they smoothed out on a piece of bread. In this manner, pray ye. This is prayer. And these are the ways that we are learning to pray. And I don't know about gun control. I don't know. I know about civil liberties. I grew up my whole life hunting. Still feels like there's a difference between a 12-gauge with double aught and an AK-47. I don't know. I'm sure if we reduced the speed limits on the highways to 35, it would save lives. But would it also encroach upon liberties? I don't know. But I tell you, with every shooting I want to be involved I want to have wisdom oh my God and I don't think the answer any longer is to bring our children into a room cloister them and teach them to pray prayers I think it's to take them into the middle of the fray into the middle of the darkness with light and love bringing peace everywhere we go. My knees aren't as calloused as they used to be, but my prayer life is getting better. For it seems now, a life lived for justice is a life of prayer. And this is the Our Father that we pray. Can you say amen?
Mel, you guys have a couple of announcements you need to make. And then after you make these important announcements, Yvonne's going to come and lead us in a prayer. I look forward to hearing that prayer. It's interesting, just this last week, if we've broached this difficult subject that so many of us have been so estranged from. Somebody said it really well this week. I've been praying more this week than I've prayed in the last 10 years. I have too. I felt very comfortable this week to look at people and say, I'll pray for you. It's not because I figured it all out, but I feel a peacefulness setting in. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of... Let us find prayer and let us turn to it. I do believe it changes lives. Amen?